Well, you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis 1, because that's where we're going to start this morning. Genesis uh, chapter 1. Part of the government's response to COVID-19 was to lock down the society. And they particularly wanted to stop churches from meeting, particularly large churches, right? because they were telling us that the churches and crowds of gathering, uh, crowds gathering together would, would spread uh, you know, the infection, would spread the, the germs and um, the, the virus that causes COVID-19. Well, they're... The riots kind of exposed that lie, the fact that they allowed large gatherings of people for rioting purposes and burning police cars and such, but they wouldn't allow churches and it kind of exposed the agenda. And here in Ohio, we were, we were, we weren't really touched directly by that because our governor merely suggested that churches do not meet. He did not order them that don't think would have been politically survivable for him in Ohio. But there was pressure, nonetheless, on these churches not to meet. But the churches that did face governmental opposition, a few of them chose to stand against the government. And we're going to see the Essential Church on July 23rd. And the story will be told by them in their own words. Um, So my point this morning isn't to tell that. My point is to say that when the government wanted to lock things down and control things, They went after pastors. They went after churches. They threatened Pastor MacArthur with jail time and multiple fines. They actually threatened and did imprison James Coates in Canada and Tim Stevenson in Canada. They put chains, a fence around a church building, Grace Life in James Coates' church. They'll do all sorts of stuff like that, but they go after the church, after the pastors. Well, now fast forward a few years, and most of those men, in fact, all that I'm aware of, have won their legal battles. The pastors have won their legal battles. Churches have won their legal battles. And so our government, our society, is kind of figuring out that at least at this time, and in the U.S., and even somewhat in Canada, places that don't have freedom of speech, as like we do here, but even there, it's very difficult to go after pastors and churches successfully. And so with the issue of transgenderism, as our world pressures people to accept this, they're not going to go after me initially. They're not going to go after Medina Bible Church. They are not going to go after pastors and churches directly. They're going to go try a different strategy. And the strategy involves going after you. You now become the front lines of the attack. And and where they do this is they do this through invading our lives. They invade the schools and dictate a certain type of speech at schools. They invade it in your workplace. I imagine that all of you that that unless you work for yourself, all of you have experienced some kind of diversity training that includes issues of transgenderism and how the how the company wants you to respond to people's requests to use their preferred pronoun and and all these other things. In the in the past, like when you had diversity training about homosexuality or women and men's issues, you could attend these trainings and pretty much remain silent. I've been through some of those when I was an engineer. And your silence was, for for better or for worse, was just assumed to be agreement. As long as you went along with the program, you didn't have to say anything. Everything was kind of copacetic within the company. They didn't bother you. You didn't bother them. You just had to listen. But things are changed now with transgenderism. They're not going to let you be quiet. The reason they won't let you be quiet is because they demand your affirmation. Albert Muller, years ago, just identified that the fact that the end of a revolution is celebration. And with the, with the, the sexual revolution getting towards a place where we call near its, near its uh, not really its end, but the fact that they are celebrating their victory, they're demanding that everybody celebrate with them. And those who do not, 
will be sacrificed. Just like at the end of the French Revolution, there were many beheadings. I'm not suggesting we'll have physical beheadings, but I'm just saying that at the end of a revolution, the victors demand that everybody celebrate with them. And that's sort of what we're seeing with our in our culture. Uh, um, the society wants you to conform. And even, even if they're not going to... Um, like go after you in your workplace, which most probably will, they're going to put pressure on you. They're going to say, you know, God's a God of love and it's loving to affirm people and it's unloving not to affirm them. That's the message that, that is being put out. And you know what? Churches are buying this. Churches are jumping on the bandwagon. They are affirming this. Um, and, and it's just not right. And my goal this morning is to try to help equip you to know how to respond. Right? Perhaps this is something you've already faced, but if not, you will face it. So thinking carefully and biblically ahead of time how you will respond to this when someone demands that you use their preferred pronoun or their um, their kind of cisgender name that they have now chosen. Right? How are you going to respond? You got to think about that ahead of time Not that you know all the details of that interaction, but in principle, how are you going to respond? I want to equip you for the battle that you are almost certainly going to face at some point in time. And they may even threaten you. You know, just like they threaten to shut churches down, they threaten to find, they may threaten you with your job if you don't conform. So you have to think about ahead of time. Is this something so important that I'm willing to lose my job over it. And I'll show you from the word of God, this is very principled and it's worth making a stand over. Do you know, go back to the situation with the churches that took a stand, the pastors that took a stand against the government. Because of their stand, today, our church and many other churches enjoy freedoms that we probably wouldn't have had if those other churches hadn't made that stand. And by Christians taking a stand in their workplaces, you are raising a voice not only for the truth, but for those around you. And I'll I'll dig into more of that later to help you see that the most loving thing you can do is to speak the truth to someone, not in a condemning way, but in a very compassionate way. And we'll dig into that. So we want to dig into how to respond to the transgender movement and from a biblical point of view. Now, to help to prepare you to respond properly, we're going to cover five life-orienting truths about gender um, from Scripture. I'll show you five life-orienting truths of gender that you must know to be an ambassador for Christ, that you must know to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the earth, so that you proclaim these realities to, to the world and also the morality of God's truth. Our confused world needs this. And these are five biblical truths you must know to be that salt and light that God tells us that we are. Now, disclaimer. um, I've been burdened for a number of weeks to try to help equip you about this. This is something that I've, I've seen in the culture. I see it in businesses. All of us have been impacted by it, and I'm concerned. Um, and I want you to be prepared for this spiritual and ideological war that is that is really confronting you in your schools, in your workplaces, in your communities, with the unbelievers, and sometimes in your own families. Right? This is going on. How, how do I respond? Hmm? So this is something that's been building a little while. At the same time, I want to give you a message that is edifying, that is appropriate for kids, because kids need to hear this. Hmm? So I promise that it will be. But I also want to disclaim, give a disclaimer that the outline that I'm following is not my own. I've been very helped by Michael Riccardi's messages on these topics. He gives, um, I'm going to try to cover a lot of territory, and he gives one sermon on each, about each of these. Much more detail. I encourage you to listen to him. I can send you the link, and I'll probably put the link in the future eBridge so that you have access to these to go a bit deeper into each of these topics. So if you listen to his messages, um, I'm copying him. He's not copying me. So just so you know that. Right? 
I've benefited from his um, analysis of this. He's a very clear thinker. And I wanted to pass that on uh, to you this morning. But before we dig into these five truths of gender, I want us to, to take a, just a step back and lay a foundation for, for our discussion about gender and that we need to talk about man's identity. When I say use the word man in the context, I'm talking about men and women. I'm talking about mankind. I'm talking about humanity. How do we identify ourselves? Um, because transgenderism, in a sense, is just a symptom of a problem. Sometimes Christians confuse the fact that that they look at transgenderism as the problem. It's it is sinful lifestyle, but it's just a symptom of something else that's going on, and and that symptom is how people are thinking about themselves, how they are identifying themselves. Now, Carl Truman, in his in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, a book book I recommend. Because it just helps give insight into how, how we got to where we are. And I, I can't cover that this morning. But he argues correctly that the LGBTQ issues that now dominate our culture and our political discussions are, are and I'll quote him, simply symptoms of a deeper revolution in what it means to be a self, unquote. In other words, people are pursuing and encouraging or affirming LGBTQ lifestyles because of how they think and define how they think about themselves, how they define themselves, how they identify themselves. So the problem is primarily an identity problem that manifests itself as as confused gender and a, and a, and a sexual lifestyle that is that is uh, abominable to our God. So people tend to identify themselves incorrectly. They've suppressed the truth of God and unrighteousness. And so they define themselves outside of a biblical framework. They don't think of themselves the way that God um, commands them to think about themselves, how they really are. And they think about themselves how they would like to be. They try to self-create themselves. So they self-identify themselves. And so really just to lay the groundwork for talking about gender, we need to look at, at what it means to be a human. What does it mean that we, um, that, uh, as human beings, men and, and women, uh, as humans, how, how do we identify ourselves? We'll look at Genesis chapter 1, and I particularly want to hone in on, on one verse to start with, and that's verse 27. And from verse 27, we're going to see three truths that, that correctly help us identify ourselves. And all this lays the groundwork for our discussion on on. Uh, talking about gender, a biblical view of gender. So let's just read that together. Genesis 1.27. We're dropping right in to one verse. This is day six of the creation account, just as the Lord has written. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you can kind of see the, the three areas that we're going to look at regarding man's identity right there in Genesis 1.27. The first truth of man's identity that we see from Genesis 1.27 is that man is created by God. Okay? So that's the first thing that we have to establish, have to, have to help people understand. that, And we have to understand, man is created by God. Now the use, again, the use of the word man here is general, refers to all humanity. It's This part of the scripture is not distinguishing between male and female. This is talking about humanity. Now, the first two people to appear on the earth did not self-create. Michael Ricardi repeats several times. It says you can self-identify if you can self-create. And since you didn't self-create, you are not allowed to self-identify. You have to identify the way in alignment with your creator. And you are created by God. And, and a natural reading of, of Genesis 1 and 2 following historical grammatical uh, method of interpretation doesn't allow at all for the view of evolution in here. And that steps on the toes of some Christians, probably not those in here, but, but other people that would call themselves Christians. They see um, this kind of a blank space between verses where these days are like long periods of time. It, it just cannot be. 
It cannot be ever so clearly. There is no way you'll ever get that from the Word of God. You only get that from science. right? And then you try to import that into the Scriptures. Well, science is wrong. I don't care what the professors are saying now, what NASA is saying now. Whatever view they have, isn't they don't, they don't know it all. Our God knows it all. And he has revealed it to us. That, that this is a literal account of creation. Man was created. We didn't, we didn't come. We, weren't, we didn't come from apes. Just to cover it very quickly, there are no fossils that link humanity with the apes. Now, the world will tell you that there are, but they've all been proved to be false. So if evolution were occurring over millions of years, it would require millions of deaths of some kind of intermediate form, and that doesn't exist in the fossil record. It's totally absent. So that alone right, tells you that evolution is a lie. You could also look at it from a statistical viewpoint. If you understand how a human body works and how complicated it is, you would understand that statistically, uh, an organism raising to a higher level and being able to pro- procreate is statistically impossible. It just can't happen. So we go back to the Word of God. All that to say, you were created. Right? All human beings were created by God. And, and that's what we have to help people understand because they'll deny that. And many have been brainwashed because they went in the public school system. Many churches even still teach this, that there's some kind of deistic evolution. That's just a lie. But people believe this, so, so we need to help them understand that they were created by God. Genesis one twenty seven. You're created by God, and people are quick to deny God because it removes some accountability. If if you're created by God, then you're accountable to to God for how you live, what you say, um, what you think, and what you do. But if God doesn't exist and you merely evolved, it kind of removes all accountability. You can kind of live the way that you want to live. And so the denying God is is just very easy for sinners to do. And I just will say that, you know, except for the grace of God, we would be in that very boat. We would be God deniers ourselves, looking to excuse our lifestyle and our sin. We would look at others as, oh, not we're better than them, but we would all fail. We would all fall short of the glory of God. So we must identify ourselves and help people understand that they are identified as creatures created by God. Now look at the next phrase in Genesis 1.27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So second truth is not that man was created, but man was created in God's image. In God's image. So because of sin, this image is fallen. Uh, it's even, a, you could say it's a tarnished image. But this is not, this is, the fall did not remove the image of God. Humanity still has the image of God. And again, Michael Cardi has a, has a full length message on just this one part that I highly recommend. Let me just try to summarize, um, the, the salient points of, of what it means to us. What are the implications of being made in the image of God? First, being a bearer of God's image means that mankind is unique among creation. We are unique among God's creatures. Only man is made in the image of God. Only humans are made in the image of God. This makes human beings more valuable than the animals. Doesn't mean we can abuse the animals or take advantage of them, but it sets us atop of, of, of what of the creation that God that God brought about. Secondly, being made in the image of God means that all mankind has dignity. All mankind has dignity. Man, every man, every woman, um, every ethnicity, every culture, uh, humanly speaking, has dignity. Every person, no matter how small and undeveloped, or no matter how old and disease-ridden, every life has value. Every life has dignity because every life is made in the image of of God and an attack on a person was worthy of death in the Old Testament because God saw it as an attack on his image. If you attack the image of God, that's an attack on God. 
So there is an, the image of God brings dignity uh, to every human being. And, and that, that means we, as Christians, to have, a, to have a truly consistent biblical worldview, we support life. Right? From the time of conception and to the time when God calls that person home, we support life. We oppose abortion. We oppose euthanasia. Right? So the very young and undeveloped or the very old and diseased are not to be killed off by society because they have the image of God. Thirdly, being made in the image of God means that all human beings are created equal and have equal inherent worth and dignity. All people from every ethnicity and every background. There's not one ethnicity or group of people that's better than another. We're all equal. Fourth, being made in the image of God means humans have rights, have the right and responsibility to rule and care for creation. It was only human beings who have the image of God in them that, that God gave the responsibility to have dominion over the earth, right? to rule uh, uh, on his behalf. God rules over all and he gave authority to man and to woman to rule and have dominion over the earth. Didn't, he didn't give that to any of the animals. Fifth, being made in God's image means that humans are accountable to God for how they represent him. If you are a representative, then you are accountable. If the President of the United States sends an ambassador to a country to represent the United States, that ambassador will be held accountable, should be, right? But in an imperfect world, not always. But with a perfect God, we'll hold that ambassador accountable for how he acts. So man is created by God and, and man is created in God's image. The, the third truth that we see from Genesis 1.27 is this. Man is created male and female. Man is created male and female. And this is foundational to our identity. Our God created genders in the binary, male and female. He could have created all sorts of genders. He chose not to in his infinite wisdom. He created two genders. And any denial or attack against binary genders is an attack against God, God's design and God's authority as our creator. As Michael Riccardi says, any, any attempt to create space between male and female is an attack on God's design and God's authority as creator. God created two genders. You kind of see this even in the animal world, right? male and female right? within the, uh, his, his creation of, of animals. And, and that carries over to his creation of men and women, or human beings. Now, some at this point will either tune me out totally if they're listening, but some might accuse me of being unkind and unloving by saying that gender is binary. I'm just telling you what God's word says. That's the first thing to establish. But it is because of love that I must say this. Number one, I love God more than I love what other people think about me. And that's not always hard to carry out, but that's the principle that I must have. Secondly, when people tell me that in order to love them, I must affirm them how they are, I cannot do that. It is a categorical lie that they are living and you and I as Christians cannot participate in that lie. Now just think about what is going on right now. People, men, just to get very specific, men are trying to become women and ha having all these sorts of surgeries to kind of look like women, but they're still ultimately men. And our world is standing around, by and large, clapping and say, oh, aren't you such a wonderful woman? Or at least most are. But it's all nonsense. Everybody knows that. You know, there's, there's the book, The Emperor Has New Clothes. You know, where the emperor gets these brand new clothes and everybody convinces them they're all nice and wonderful. But he ha actually, he doesn't have any new clothes. He's naked. But everybody around him pretends like he has clothes on and, and therefore just praises him for all these wonderful clothes. Well, that's what is being demanded in this transgender movement. 
Right? So people are, men are trying to pretend like they're women and then wanting everybody around them to affirm that they are women. But that they can't change that. It, it, it's, it's a big lie. And as we're going to see in, in a little bit, I'll mention more details later, but, but it is completely unloving to mutilate and butcher someone's body to try to get their gender to just look like the other sex. That's all they can do. It's cosmetic surgery. It's not functional surgery. And I'll be very just brief and dignified in that. Things don't function. They just look. That's not loving. And they'll say, well, if you don't affirm me, then that person's at a greater risk of suicide. Right? They'll throw that card in there. And of course, none of us want anybody to commit suicide. We don't want to be complicit in that. But if someone is suicidal, you can't fix that. Jesus can fix that, but you cannot. And if you affirm their transgenderism and they're suicidal already, and they go ahead and transition and mutilate their body and do devastating things to their body that, that cannot be undone, they're still going to be suicidal. They're going to be unhappy with themselves and they're still going to be suicidal in the end. And in fact, to me know which study you look at, the statistics are that transgender people who go through with the transition are 40% more likely to commit suicide than those who do not. So there's all sorts of studies out there. So just beware. Um, by and large, the government lies to you in this regard. Many companies lie to you. The medical institution, by and large, is lying to you. But there's big money behind all this. And so when they say that they care about someone, they don't care about someone. They just want the money. They want to use that person as a pawn in their political agenda to pursue transgenderism, to push this. And they also want to make money. Because every person that transitions is on those medications for life. And they're not cheap. And they also don't tell them that many times that when you have these surgeries, skin grafts don't always take. Sometimes you have lifelong skin grafting problems, infections. Right? Uh, things don't work like they're supposed to. There's all sorts of complications that are not said. Just like in the past, our government lied about all the complications that are potential with the COVID vaccine. They lied. And they're lying again, covering up all the complications that come from trying to change your gender. So this is just the foundation. The foundation or identity of man. It's very, it's very simple. Genesis 1.27, you can remember it. Man was created. In the image of God, he was created. And he was created male and female. So don't buy the lie that there's more genders than two. So that's what the world is going to want you to do that. Now, with this foundation, let's look specifically at the truths about gender. Right? That'll, that'll dovetail with these, but also build upon them. Five truths of gender that you and I need to, to understand, to embrace, to proclaim to the world around us so we'd be salt and light to them. And, and when I'm using the word gender, I just want to be very clear that I'm using it as a synonym for the word sex, like male and female. There are two sexes. There are two genders. Our world wants to separate gender and sex. Don't let them do that. That's a more modern thing that they're doing to try to, to say that gender is who you feel you are inside. Sex is who you are bio, uh, biologically. But that is inaccurate as we'll see here in, in a moment. So I'm using the word gender, using it as a synonym for sex, uh, male and female. The first truth about gender that we need to understand is that gender is created by our creator. Gender is created by our creator. It flows from what we already saw in Genesis 1.27. He created them male and female. God created gender. And since God created um, man, male and female, he created gender. And God, again, could have created a rainbow of genders. He chose not to in his infinite wisdom. They're just two genders. God was pleased to create man as male and female, and 
Genesis 1.31 tells us that after creating man as male and female, God looked at his creation and declared that everything was not just good, but was what? Very good. God's, decla- God's declaration. So this is before the entrance of sin. Right? God created gender, declared it to be very good. What this means is that gender is not a social construct as we're being told today. Gender was created by God. It's not a social construct. Um, you're not afraid to identify as the opposite gender of your birth gender. Right? And again, that's because you didn't create yourself. God created you as either male or female, and you need to live as, as how God has made you, either as male or female. In fact, he commands that you do that for his glory and honor. Another thing we need to consider here is that since God created gender and God created you, he owns all of us. He owns you. He owns me. He has right to tell us. He has the right to tell us how to live. He has the authority to tell us how we live. He created us. But if we're Christians, this is now doubly true. Not only are we God's possession because he created us, we're also God's possession because he purchased us with the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, and dealing with sexual immorality, listen to what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. He says, Do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Listen to that. You are not your own. For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You are called to glorify God in your body. As Mike recording rightfully concludes, it is if God points to your body and he says, my body, my choice. And he commands you to live within it. He has that authority. He gave you your body to live in and you are to live in accordance with that body for the glory of God. Gender is created by God. Let's look at the second truth. The second truth is this. Gender is grounded in biology. So not only is gender created by God, gender is grounded in biology. I want you to look at Genesis 2, uh, 7 here um, with this. Uh, Genesis helps us to understand so much. Look at Genesis 2, 7 for a minute. Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life so that the man became a living being. So Genesis 1 kind of gives the overview. Genesis 2 gives us more detail. And here specifically, and the context is showing us that, that this is a description on how our Lord God created Adam, the first male, the first man. Right? He took him from, from dirt, formed him, fashioned him, and breathed life into him. Now, God declares something about his creation that was not good. God's just not a rubber stamp person. There is something he said that wasn't good. And and look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So in Genesis 2.18, God, God declares that it's not good for the man to be alone. Not just in the relational sense. Look how he connects that statement with what comes next. Verse 19 describes the formation of the animals, which this is a summary because the animals were made before man, but this is a summary. Out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that, would, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to the beast, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So there is a task, not identified here, but identified in Genesis 1, as we'll see. There's a task which God called Adam to carry out, but he couldn't carry out that task by himself. He needed a helper to to carry out that task, and he needed a suitable helper. And all the animals came before him, and Adam named them. And and God created them male and female. 
of every animal. But there was not yet a female human. There was not a suitable helper. Okay? We see God create that, create her, right, in verse 21. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That last statement is, is really Moses' uh, summary, God's summary uh, of God creating marriage. God defines marriage, one man, one woman. That's the only definition of marriage. Right? God created it. So the God creates a woman. And I know some people are confused about what is a woman. But very clearly from the square of God, we can see that a woman is an adult female. It's that simple. An adult female. Right? Don't need a two-hour movie to dictate that. But our world is so confused. A woman is an adult female. And God gave Adam, the first male, a task that he could only accomplish if there were a female. Go back to Genesis 1. And none of the female animals would do. Doesn't work. God forbids it. And it doesn't work biologically. God blessed them after creating, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of he created them. Male and female, he created them. So he declares that. Male and female, he declared, he, he says that. And then verse 28, God blessed them and said to them. What's the first thing he says? Verse 28. Okay. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the task that God was assigning to Adam that he could not carry out himself is to procreate, was to fill the earth and have dominion of it. Yes, men and women were called to have dominion, but to have dominion over such a large earth would require more people. God is telling them to procreate. It's his command. So. We're looking at the fact that gender is rooted in biology. God created a male, female within a biological framework so that reproduction could take place. And that was God's purpose. Again, gender is not a social construct. Gender is created by God in order that man and woman in marriage could reproduce. And all of this was by God's good design before the sin entered the world. Now, let me deal with two, two objections. To this, some might object to this by pointing out that not every man, every married man and woman, not every man and woman are able to have children. Does this mean somehow they're any less of a man or any less than a woman? No, no, not not at all. Infertility is a result of the fall. It it, it came as a consequence of sin entering the world. It doesn't impact the design. The fact that there is sin in the world that that now has has caused it so that not every man or every woman can reproduce doesn't change the fact that God's original intent was for male and female to be created in such a way they could reproduce. So infertility doesn't doesn't is a consequence of, of sin that doesn't impact God's design. God's design was good in the beginning. So our, our identity is grounded, grounded in whom God made us to be. It's not grounded in our function. Just because your body doesn't function the way that God designed doesn't make you any less of a human being. Now, others might object to gender being grounded in biology by pointing to people who are born with both features called intersex people. It's very, very, it's very rare, but it does happen. Okay? So they point to intersex people as a case where you can have uh, two sexes. But keep in mind, this, again, is the result of sin. It's the result of sin entering the world. These are genetic anomalies in these cases. But these intersex people do not constitute a third gender. They just have 
features of both uh, of both genders, right? And most of the time, doctors can look at the chromosome level and determine whether it's really a man or really a woman, right? Male or female in that case. Um, so there are these very difficult cases. And these intersex people are used as pawns, as tools for really manipulation. When these people actually need just, they need compassion. I, uh, Dr. Purdom, a, a doctor who, who writes about this on the Answers in Genesis website, uh, uh, has a very helpful, I think, paragraph. And I just want to just want to read that to you. In all these cases, we see, talking about these intersex people, in all these cases, we see that individuals are either male or female based on their sex chromosomes or portions thereof. So there are only two genders, two sexes. Every person born is either one or the other. Many times, parents and doctors may not even be aware that children have these disorders at birth. These disorders present difficult situations in a sin-cursed world, and parents, children, and doctors need support and compassion as they face challenging decisions. So Michael Riccardi gives a, a helpful example. He's saying that people sometimes are born without two legs. Right? They're born that way. That doesn't mean that God's design isn't for man to be uh, bipedal. God did design man to be bipedal. You walk on two legs, but, but not every human being is born with two legs. That, that still doesn't change God's, God's design. So don't, don't let the exceptions that entered the world because of sin change our thinking on God's good design, how he created us. So gender is inseparably linked to and grounded in biology. And, and people, our, our world is doing all that it can to cosmetically change people to match who they feel that they are. But they can never change the biology part. Can't change the chromosomes. Okay? The chromosomes, in a way, are given by God as a as an in, indelible uh, witness to who God created us to be. Look, look, look at, let's look at the third truth. Gender is so gender is created by God, and it's grounded in biology. Gender is a gift of God's loving care. And here, I'd like you to turn to Psalm one hundred thirty nine. Psalm 139, and particularly looking at verses uh, 13 to 16. Gender is a gift of God's loving care. Psalm 139, beginning at verse 13. The psalmist says, speaking to God, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance, and in your book all of them were written, all the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. God creates every human being in his or her mother's womb. God handcrafts every single person that means that god handcrafts your gender that's god's work and just think about could an all-wise all-knowing all-loving and good god make a mistake with your gender no he created you just the way he wanted you and declared that good. It's preposterous to think that God would make a mistake in creating you. Your body is a gift of God's loving care. And your body, your biology, declares your gender. So you need to give thanks, like the psalmist, giving thanks for what the Lord has done. You know, sometimes we look at, sometimes Christians, we, we may not question um, gender, but don't you sit back and some sometimes and say, God, I wish you made me a little taller. Or I wish you would have given me a different hair. Or I wish you would have made me... Like, we, we just really need to stop. It's the same kind of ideology. You can sympathize with someone who's confused about their gender, right? It, it just shows you one way you can sympathize with them. You can have compassion on them. They wish they were different. Sometimes we wish we were different. And so we just need to back up and just say that's, that's wrong thinking. 
We need just to thank God for how he has made us, the things that you cannot change, and live within those means for for God's glory. Um, God created you who you are. Don't rebel against it. Receive it as a gift and protect it as a most precious gift. Don't let people butcher your body in order to try to change something that can't be changed. The gender is created by God. It's grounded in biology. It's God's gift of his loving care. Fourth, gender is part of the goodness of the body. It's part of the goodness of the body. And here, just think about Genesis 1.31, where God, God created man. In his image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then he looked at everything he created and said, it's all very good. It's all very good. That includes the physical body. And the reason to point it out is because there's a kind of a, 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 there's a a philosophy called Gnosticism that was in ancient times, in New Testament times, it had its incipient form, its beginning form, and he developed more later. But, But Gnosticism tries to separate the body and soul. It'll say the body doesn't, doesn't really matter and the body kind of is evil the soul the inner being is what's really true and, and Mike Riccardi does a good job of, of identifying the fact that transgenderism shares some beliefs with Gnosticism and declaring the body to be kind of bad it's, it's interesting transgenderism is completely inconsistent on the one hand they will say that the body is so unimportant that you have to look within to determine your gender. And on the other hand, they'll say the body is so important, we have to change the body to match the inner gender. So they want to have it both ways, and they can't. It's completely inconsistent. Right? So the, God says the body is important. It is. And when God redeems us, he just doesn't save your soul. He promises to save your body as well. And if you live um, to a place where you die a natural death and your body deteriorates into dust, at the resurrection, God is going to reconstitute your body perfectly in a glorified sense. So it shows you God's thoughts about the body. It's not unimportant. It is important. Now, some people go to the other extreme and they, they deny the spiritual realm and they, they kind of worship the body and they try to do everything they can to live forever. You're not. And nobody else is going to live forever either. Um, God is the one who created the body. And he declared it good. And he redeems us soul and body. Like when he creates us, he creates us as um, the term would be a psychosomatic person, a whole, a unity. We are spiritual and we are physical. And Paul even uses the language. He says, if, if, I were to, if, if I were not to be in my body, I would be unclothed. He describes the spirit without a body as being naked. Not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense. God created your soul to be clothed with your body. That's a, your unity, a physical and spiritual unity. These go together. Um, God cares about the body. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, you are exhorted by the Apostle Paul to, he says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So again, your body matters to God. It's, Im- it's important how he created your body. It's part of the goodness of the body. And it, it's interesting, and Michael Cardi again draws this out. I give him credit. Think about our Lord. Our Lord just didn't come as the second person of the Trinity. What did he do? Took on flesh. Took on a body. And not in a temporary sense. He just didn't inhabit a human body. He took on humanity. Never to be jettisoned again. Our Lord is on his throne in heaven now with a human body. It's a glorified human body, but it's a human body. It's a human body. It's a male human body. God doesn't erase that because the disciples all knew of Jesus. They they didn't recognize him until their eyes were open, but once their eyes were open, they recognized him as Jesus. And all throughout the New Testament, the pronoun never changes. He, it's spoken of he, he, he. Okay, Jesus is a male. 
it's not proper to speak of him in any kind of female terms because that's how that's who he is and that's who he he'd revealed himself to be it doesn't make male better or inherently worth more or anything like that all that's nonsense we already established from our foundation that every human being gets its worth from being made in the image of God both male and female so the, the gender is part of the goodness of of the body that God has given to you. So we, we should not manipulate it or medicate it or amputate it or do anything it, it, to try to change our body, which is really a futile attempt to, to align our body with who we think we are. See, right now, people get their identity from what they feel. And if they feel, like if a woman feels that she's a man and tries to do all that she can to kind of become a man, um, then then she is deceiving herself. She'll never really become a man. She'll never succeed. She'll never be happy. The same true is with a man that that deceives himself into thinking that that he is, in herself, is a woman. You might think, oh, that's nonsense. But understand that the world is so jettisoned truth they so jettison any kind of ideal being created by God that they are self-creating and that's who they feel they are. And if you don't affirm it, then they see you as personally attacking them. They would see a, a, a non-affirmation as, in fact, like you wanting them dead. Right? Of course, that's not true. They're believing a lie. But that's how they're, I'm trying to help you understand, that's how they're viewing it so that we might have compassion on them. They're seeking something that they will never obtain, which is happiness in how their body looks and compared to how they feel. Feelings change all the time. Well, let's look at the fifth uh, truth about gender. Um, and that is this. Gender is properly expressed in distinctive ways. Gender is properly expressed in distinctive ways. So not only did God make him male and female, but he made male and female distinct physically and distinct in a certain sense in in the ways that we live out our lives. Um, Again, I can only touch on these things in a brief way, but I wanted to give you the whole picture. Um, And really just looking at Deuteronomy 22.5 for a moment, and we're just going to kind of jump into Deuteronomy 22.5. There's a lot of commands there. Um, Some about like, uh, not wearing linen made of mixed clothing, and you'll get somebody to throw that in your face, and you're like, "Well, you you wear mixed clothing. Well, you know why why don't you listen to that, and why do you listen to this other one nearby?" Well, I think we have to carefully parse the commands and to see whether these commands were given as moral commands that are timeless, or whether they were commands given to the Israelites specifically in any kind of ceremonial sense to keep them separate from the nations around them. So we have, to, we have to carefully parse that. We don't have time to dig in all those details. I just want us to kind of jump down and see Deuteronomy 22.5. It says this, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing. For whatever whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh your God. That term abomination is very, very strong. Strong language. God does not want us to dress in any way that confuses the sexes. Right? Women are to dress like women. Men are to dress like men. And notice there's there's no like uh, instructions there on what exactly that means. So, because that changes with the culture. So like in our culture, it's okay for women to wear pants. In other cultures, in past cultures, it wasn't. Right? But but women can wear pants today and look like women. Right? There are women pants. Right? I don't want to wear them. I wear pants, but you under, you get what I'm saying. There's there's things for women to wear that help them look like women, and there's things that men should wear that look like men. But in other cultures it's slightly different. You know, if you were a thirteenth century Scottish warrior, you would have been wearing a kilt. But any man and no one questioned their manliness. So but if somebody walking around with a skirt today, or the man walking around with a skirt today, you would you would question things. It would be confusing. So God wants us to live within the, the distinctive way within our gender, and and this is even carried over into the New Testament. In in First Corinthians eleven, 
Um, and it's a, it's a passage where there's lots of details here. But just let me kind of jump into that to the passage, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 16. And there Paul says, um, and, and there he, Paul is dealing with the distinctiveness between men and women in the Corinthian culture. He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her hair uncovered, with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? So there Paul is pointing to nature. He said, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. Now, does that mean every woman has to have long hair? No. Okay. I think it, 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 you just have to have hair that looks like a, a woman needs to look like a woman in her haircut style. A man needs to look like a man in his hairstyle. Right? Some men can wear long hair and still look very manly. Okay. Not many, but a few. <laughs> That's just my personal opinion. Okay. Some women can wear short hair and look wonderfully feminine with that right so the issue here isn't a legalistic standard it's a principle god wants women females to look like females and males to look like males that's his design and and the church has really muddled that up because that's when they get into all this kind of legalistic stuff on what women can wear what men can wear you know the general principle is if you're a man dress like a man if you're a woman Rest like a woman. It's not that complicated. So remember that as we talk to people, they're living in very uh, confused times and they are confused. So let me just speak to different groups here just, just for a moment. If you are someone who struggles with gender dysphoria and, and you may or may not be a believer, all I can say is, is that you are believing a lie and I hate that the world has so confused you and so um, encouraged this confusion in your thinking. There's a grave danger of listening to the culture right now. And sometimes even listening to doctors, listening to those that are within our political sphere. Sometimes it's a grave danger to even listen to your teacher because they, all, they seem to all have an agenda that they are pursuing. And the agenda really isn't to help you. It's to get you onto their political, their transsexual bandwagon or to get money out of you or to get money out of your insurance company or to get money out of the federal government that keeps coming. It's that they don't really care about you. What I can tell you is that the scriptures are trustworthy. So go back to the scriptures. Trust the scriptures that you were created by God just the way that you are, either a man or a woman, a male or female. Know that God has given you your gender as a, as a good gift. And you might be confused about that gender. And, and what do you do about it? Don't medicate. Don't try to, to have some operation to change something you really can't change. Call to God for help. He can help you think rightly. He can help you live for the glory of God and for your own good in the body that he has given you right now. And, and know that there's great forgiveness through faith. All of this gender dysphoria is the result of, of sin. Maybe not your personal sin, but of sin in this world. And our Lord Jesus Christ died to forgive sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So call out to him. He will not turn you away. He will forgive. He will help. He will help you walk through whatever dark valleys you are walking through right now. This is serious stuff. Lives are in the line. Trust God. I also want us to think about how how do we help children? Note this. Encourage girls to be girls and boys to be boys. That's okay if girls play with boy toys. That's not a sign that they're confused in their genders. If, if a boy wants to play with a doll... That's not a sign that he's confused. Hey, you might have to encourage some men or some young men, some boys to be more manly. You might have to encourage some women to be more feminine. That's okay. That, that, you encourage that because that's in alignment with the word of God. Don't look at those things as like, oh, there's a sign that he's transgender because he's playing with a doll. No, that, that's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell and it's a lie that keeps being repeated in our society and in our schools. Uh, 
you know, in Ohio, we are somewhat sheltered from some of the social stuff going on in New York and California. But I will tell you what's going on here. So there's an online group of school public school teachers that were talking with other school teachers from, I think, Indiana and Michigan on how to encourage children's gender transitions in a way the parents wouldn't find out. That's happening here in Ohio. So if you have children in schools, right, you need to know what they're being taught and you need to be well aware of every single teacher. You need to know them. And you can kind of tell where people are at. Leave it there. Know your children's teachers. Protect your children. And, and in a certain sense, we have a duty as believers, as the Lord gives us opportunity to stand up for these children that are being mutilated and butchered. I mean, our world is telling us that they can give children puberty blockers and it just puts a pause on their development. It's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Because there's so many other things that happens within the body, from building bone mass to building muscles to all sorts of developing of other things, you are actually are changing how that how that child is going to be as an adult by pausing those hormones that are going on within that within that child. It's not as simple push the pause and we can unpush the pause and everything's back to normal. That is simply not true. It's also not true that that. These um, that this helps children live better lives. Butchering women, young women, into trying to look like a man, right? That's just sick. And as believers, we have to stand against it at every opportunity that we can. Uh, some unbelievers are standing up um, as voices against us. So all to say is, believers, make a stand. There are children, just like we've made a stand for against abortion and try to try to help children survive the womb. We need to make a stand for children here in Ohio as the Lord gives us opportunity right, to make a stand to try to protect children from being mutilated and being abused. There's big money in this for these companies because if they can get someone when they're really young, they're on the drugs their entire life. Right? And keep in mind, I'll say it again, nothing functions. It's all for looks. And it's a big, fat lie. The children who go through this have chests with no feelings. They have forearms that are missing muscles because those have been harvested for other things. It's sick. You would accuse the Nazis of doing this if you lived in a different time. Stand up for them. As believers, we have a duty not to be deceived by the world. Stand for truth. It is loving to tell them the truth. It's not loving to affirm them in their confusion. I mean, how can it be loving to encourage the mutilation of one's body? Just keep that, that perspective in your mind as you're accused of being unloving for not affirming. No, you're loving by telling the truth. They may not listen. And you need to tell them the truth in a very compassionate way. And you need to tell them the truth in a way that provides a platform for the gospel. But tell them the truth. And you know what? If the Lord decides to take your job, it's his to take anyway. Right? I mean, I'm not saying that in a, in a carefree way. But I'm saying the stand for truth for the Lord is worth Losing your job over if that's what he calls you to do. Right? Do it respectfully, honor him, and use every legal means you have at your disposal to protect your job and make sure the government is observing your rights um, as an individual. Many who were fired in COVID were able to get their jobs back later. So um, take a stand for truth, and, and God will provide for you. You know, we finished Jude recently. We talked about trying to rescue those who are perishing. That's what this, that's what this ministry is. Right? And, and this, you see these people around you. They're in your workplaces. They're in your schools. They're in your neighborhoods. Some of them are in your families. Because right? this, this kind of confusion in, you know, doesn't, doesn't just skip over um, families of Christian parents. 
It doesn't. It invades it. And we need to pray for one another and help one another to, to the glory of God. Right? We want to take a stand for truth as ambassadors for Christ. Kind of where we started. We want to be the salt and light of the earth, the glory of God, and for the good of the people around us, that they too might know the forgiveness of sins, they might know Christ and live for him. So believers, as as ambassadors of light, be that light. Be the salt that God calls you to be in this society. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for just giving us your, your truth, for giving us your word. I thank you, Lord, for this church. And I just pray that you would make us to be salty salt and very bright light. Not just in our words, but through our lives. It would be pursuing holiness and righteousness. Lord God, use us as your ambassadors to respond rightly to the confusion that's caused by transgenderism and those that pursue that. Oh Lord, just help us to rescue those who are confused, those who are being taken advantage of, those who think that they're, they'll, be, they'll just be happy if they change certain things about their bodies. Lord, they're believing a lie. And I just ask that you would use us to, to rescue those who are so confused. Use us to rescue the lost and dying. For the glory of Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.